Well, every so often, Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day collide. It seems kind of like love and death colliding. Uh, Ash Wednesday, of course, marks the beginning of Lent. Uh, those 40 days in the church calendar focused on Christ's suffering, Christ's temptation, Christ's cross, Christ's victory for us. And, of course, also the season of Lent focuses on the call that we have, the call that has been placed on our lives to repent, to take up our crosses, to follow him, to fight the good fight. Lent is a season of spiritual warfare. That's what Ash Wednesday is about, beginning the season of Lent. Valentine's Day, on the other hand, uh, is marked on the church calendar to remember the third century Bishop Valentine, who ministered to persecuted Christians, including uh, performing clandestine marriages at a time when the emperor was uh, forbidding such unions. Uh, he was martyred on February 14th, 269, and the church has uh, remembered him for a long, long time now. Uh, but it's interesting to consider the way these two uh, days that are marked on the church calendar, how different they are. Ash Wednesday, of course, is observed by confessing sin, singing somber hymns about the cross like we've done tonight, smearing ashes on our foreheads. Valentine's Day, on the other hand, is celebrated with romance, candlelight, uh, candlelight dinners, slow dancing, things of that nature. It would seem that these two days could not be more different, and yet here we are with both commemorations falling on the same day. Uh, first, I want to say for you men who uh, brought your sweetheart, uh, here to a service of ashes, instead of taking her to a fancy dinner, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for that. Uh, for you ladies who are getting ashes instead of a nice dinner, uh, I trust that your man will make it up to you uh, at the right time. Uh, actually, I think Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day coinciding is very helpful. This is a very happy juxtaposition uh, that happens every few years in the church calendar. And this is why. This is why I think it's important for us to think about these days together. If there is anything that our culture has burned to ash, it is love, sex, and romance. Our culture has reduced these good gifts of God to ashes. And tonight, that's what I really want us to consider. We have turned love and marriage to ashes. We need to see that, but we also need to see how the gospel can reverse that so that love and marriage rise from the ashes to glory once again. Our culture is undoubtedly a sex-obsessed culture. And because we are obsessed with sex, because we have made sex into an idol, we have destroyed sex. Or here's another way you could put that. Because our culture worships sex, sex is destroying us. Because anything we turn into an idol is going to destroy us. Uh, Ash Wednesday of course, is all about dealing with our personal sin, recognizing our sin before God, recognizing what our sin deserves. That's what the ashes are all about. It's not just dust to dust. We go back to the dust we came from. It's ashes to ashes. It's not just that we die and get buried. It's, it's that apart from Jesus, we are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. That's what the ashes are all about. It's what we deserve. But Lent is not just about dealing with our own personal sin. It's also about dealing with the sin of the world all around us. How that sin influences us and infects us. How we can push back against it. Again, Lent is a season of spiritual warfare. And this is precisely where the battle rages the most. This is the defining issue of our age. 
sexuality. The greatest crisis we face is in this area of sexuality. You know, I find it really interesting today when you talk to non-Christians about the Christian faith, it's not really like it was when I was growing up. You know, they don't uh, want to know about miracles so much. They don't mock us for believing God made the world in six days, 6,000 years ago. They don't really want to get into debates over whether or not Jesus rose from the dead bodily on the third day. It's interesting what they want to know when you start to evangelize a non-Christian, what they want to know is what do you think about LGBTQ people? And if you will not toe the line and approve of their lifestyles, of their desires, of their behavior, you will be called a bigot, or maybe even worse than that. It's almost like LGBTQ has become an alternative religion for people. Think about it. Coming out of the closet is kind of like a conversion experience for people. Pride Month is their alternative to the church calendar canceling those accused of bigotry because they don't approve of these sexual lifestyles, canceling those accused of this kind of bigotry is their version of church discipline. Gay activism is their version of the, the Great Commission. So they've got a version of church discipline, they've got a version of the Great Commission. Abortion is their bloody sacrament. And pop culture has supplied them with countless hymns, if you will, celebrating their claim that love is love. Love who you want, it's all the same, it's all good. We need to understand the sexual revolution is really a rolling revolution. Uh, it keeps spreading, it keeps infecting new areas, it, it keeps claiming more and more cultural turf, it keeps finding new issues to champion, it keeps finding new classes of sexual minorities who must be celebrated and protected at all costs because after all, sexual minorities are victims and therefore they are justified no matter what they do. That's the way the world thinks about these things. The reality of course is <clears throat> Not only is the health and well-being of the church dependent on stopping this tide of the sexual revolution, the well-being of the church is dependent on, upon that, but really the future of our civilization is at stake in this. The sexual revolution is genocide. It is slow-motion genocide. It is civilizational Suicide. Think about how this is, how the sexual revolution is leading to the end, the extermination of our culture. Birth rates are at an all-time low, and of course, without children, there is no future. Marriage rates are at an all-time low, and of course, without marriage, without family life, civilization has no future. Fewer people want to get married and start a family than at any time in our history. Illegitimacy is at an all-time high because fewer and fewer people see the point in making a marriage covenant. America is the most prosperous country in the world, undoubtedly, but we have more fatherlessness here than anywhere. Children growing up without a father in the home. And children growing up without a father is the single biggest indicator, the single biggest predictor of poverty, crime, and other forms of social dysfunction in that child's life as he grows up. But it's not just fatherlessness, we've also got more motherlessness as well as more and more women are outsourcing the tasks of motherhood. They're outsourcing motherhood. So they have children, but they don't want to do the bulk of the work raising them. They don't want to nurture their children. And so they outsource it. 
And this has devastating consequences for children as well as they get older. If a child does not bond with his mother in those early years, he will have a slew of emotional, mental, and relational problems later in life, almost certainly. Despite the Dobbs ruling overturning Roe v. Way, there are still several hundred thousand abortions in America per year, turning the woman's body, which is to be life-giving, turning her body into a graveyard. Children are often sacrificed by men and women both for the sake of comfort, for the sake of convenience, for the sake of sexual pleasure. The fact is, Americans love sexual autonomy more than we love children. And so we cannot let children get in the way of us getting what we want. That's how many people look at it. The reality is that God designed sex, marriage, and children to go together, but in our culture we have ripped them apart. We have torn them apart. Or think of transgenderism. Transgenderism allows people to elevate their emotions and their feelings above truth, even above biological realities. And if you don't play along with that delusion, if you don't play along with that lie, you could find yourself without a job or even in jail. Pornography is an epidemic. Hookup culture is common, especially on college campuses. The divorce rate continues to be astronomically high, uh, hovering around 50% for the general population. On and on we could go. Again, we've taken God's beautiful gifts of love and marriage and family, and we've turned them into ashes. Feminism is one reason for this. Feminism seeks to blur and minimize the differences between the sexes. So feminism emasculates men. Men become passive and effeminate. And feminism hardens women so they become aggressive and seek to be independent. Feminism started off bad and it's only gotten progressively worse with each successive wave. Go back to the early days of what's called the feminist movement. Susan B. Anthony viewed marriage as slavery for women, a form of slavery. Emma Goldman uh, viewed housewives as uh, nothing more than parasites. Feminism was really the beginning of identity politics in American culture, separating women from their husbands and from their children and turning them into an isolated special interest group. And of course, we've continued to see now down through the years how much identity politics uh, can fragment a culture, how it can fragment a society. It really begins with feminism. Feminism, again, has hardened women. It's made them much more career-oriented than family-oriented. It's made women promiscuous and childless. Have women been mistreated in various societies throughout history? Yes, of course. Have women been mistreated by men down through the course of history? Yes, absolutely, no question. But feminism is not the answer. We're told today by feminists that sex is fluid, not binary. That sex is a spectrum. That the differences between men and women are really a social construct. And so really the desire of feminists in general is it's the desire to create an androgynous or a unisex society where the differences between men and women are of no consequence where the differences between men and women are eliminated. Now, of course, this kind of society is unnatural, and so it only produces misery. It goes against the grain of reality. It's going to war with the way God made the world, so it is doomed to fail. But that's the attempt that's going on right now all around us. Feminism has been bad for women, bad for men, bad for children. 
bad for marriage and family? It's simply not the answer. Indeed, when the differences between men and women are minimized, the sexes become rivals and competitors rather than complements. When the differences between men and women are minimized, attraction between the sexes is diminished. Because it is sexual polarity that drives attraction. It's sexual differentiation that drives sexual attraction. Men and women want something different from each other, something they don't have. If you blur those differences between men and women, you make it harder for men and women to bond. Turning the sexual binary into a spectrum destroys manhood, it destroys womanhood, and it destroys the possibility of any bond between them, certainly any strong bond. It's very important to understand this, very important. None of this had to happen. There was nothing inevitable, inevitable about this. Oh, some people point to the rise of the Industrial Revolution or, or other movements that took place that basically make it sound as if these changes were inevitable. No. The decline has been a choice at every step along the way. A choice that too many in our culture have made, a choice to rebel against God's design. Instead of seeking to find ways to adapt God's design to changing material conditions like the Industrial Revolution, we have rejected God's design altogether. And sadly, all of us, all of this, this whole package of things that comes with the sexual revolution, sadly, all of this has infiltrated the church. It's not just that in the church you have Christians who fall into sexual sin. That's obviously always been the case. That's always been the issue. Christians are sinners. We know that. We know that Christians are going to sin sexually and, and, and that's happened throughout the ages. There's nothing new about that. But there's something else going on. It is that Christians, so many Christians, have tried to accommodate themselves to the sexual revolution to basically accommodate themselves to it, to accommodate to the sins that the culture is most celebrating and defending. It's as if the church has allowed itself to be catechized by the world. And so let me give you some examples of this. Maybe you're familiar with some of these. There are some Christian leaders, and I'm talking about big name, evangelical leaders, pastors and whatnot, who in, in, in recent years have used the line, they have said the Bible whispers about sexual sin. The Bible whispers about sexual sin. Now let me just tell you, anybody who says the Bible whispers about sexual sin, they're certainly not fit to pastor a church. I wouldn't even want them leading a tiny Bible study because they're so utterly clueless. And yet again, some big name pastors have said this and they've said it repeatedly. They say the Bible whispers about sexual sin and they will say the Bible shouts about sins like greed and materialism and racism. Now this is so obviously pandering to the culture, minimizing the sins that the culture wants to celebrate, and then maximizing those things that the culture around us would identify as sin as well. It's so obviously pandering, it's just embarrassing. It's, it's so uh, cowardly on the part of these Christians. The reality is the Bible does not whisper about any sin, and certainly not about sexual sin. All you have to do is read the second half of Romans 1 to see that. Or go look at any of the so-called vice lists. There are eight vice lists in the New Testament. And these are lists where basically uh, if you make these 
the sins in these lists, your way of life, your continual practice. As Paul says at the end of one of these lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, he says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. These sins, living this way, will exclude you from the kingdom. Sexual sin shows up in every single one of those vice lists. Sexual sin is frequently and uniformly condemned in the scriptures. There is no whispering about anything here. Even when Jesus is dealing with lust, he's clearly not whispering. He says the fight against lust is the fight of your life, that if you won't cut off your hand or gouge out your eye in the battle against lust, that you'll be cast into hell. He says you have to fight this battle. Of course, lust doesn't come from the hand or the eye. It really comes from the heart. So that's what has to be cut out. But still, the, the stakes are so clear in what Jesus says. There's nothing there where you could say this is whispering about sexual sin. Another example of the sexual revolution infiltrating the church. There is a whole gay Christian movement going on right now. You may have heard about this one as well. The gay Christian movement. Those who are Christians who identify as gay. And they would say that they're attracted to the same sex. So they have same sex attraction. But they would say the same sex attraction is morally neutral. Some might even say it's morally good. Now, they would generally say you should not act on it. But the desire itself, this same-sex attraction, is not sinful in itself. And again, this is just the sexual revolution infiltrating the church. I would say it's obvious. If that is someone's temptation, yes, they do need to resist acting on it, but they need to realize just how deep the sin goes. What the gay Christian movement misses is that the desire for sin is itself sinful. The desire for something that is sinful is sinful in itself. But again, there are many in the church who are coddling this sin because it's culturally approved. And this is a way of curring favor with the culture. But it's not faithful to the word of God. Or here's another one you may have seen. Many in the church today have accepted the whole idea of sexual identity. This really comes from Freud. But it's also become a main tactic of the LGBTQ activists. The point here is that sexual identity comes to define a person. Sexual desires and behaviors become categories of identity. So if you ask somebody today, if you were to go on a college campus and ask people the who am I question, the kind of answers you would get in a lot of cases, people would answer that who am I question in terms of their sexual desires or their sexual practices or their sexual orientation. They'd say, well, I'm a lesbian or I'm a queer or I'm bi or I'm trans. Sexuality becomes identity. Orientation becomes identity. Feelings become identity. Desires become identity. We could say sin becomes identity. And what happens when someone makes sin essential to their personhood? What happens when they make sin, some sinful desire or practice, the defining feature of who they are? What happens then when they hear the gospel? When they hear the call to repent, a call to repent of their sinful sexual desires or their sinful sexual practices, they hear the call to repent as a demand that they cease being human. They will say, you think you're attacking my sin, you're really attacking my dignity as a human. 
And so what this sexual identity, this way of thinking about things does, it makes it virtually impossible to preach the gospel to LGBTQ persons. To preach the gospel to them becomes a form of hate speech or bullying. Now, sometimes the gospel still gets through, and we certainly should seek to preach the gospel to them. We should seek to love them, to show them the love of Christ, and to speak the truth of Christ to them. And sometimes that truth will get through. But this whole notion of sexual identity makes it so much harder. And this is what's interesting. No other sin gets treated this way. Thieves and drunkards don't get to turn their particular sinful proclivities into an identity and then have them protected in this kind of way. No other sins get treated in this way. The culture is doing this and many in the church have gone right along with it. See, the sexual revolution in all its various permutations has reduced love, marriage, family, sex, and sexuality to ashes. We have taken God's good gifts and we've burned them all to the ground. I would say it's not an oddity that Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day land on the same day. I would say Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday belong together in America in 2024. Because here we see where sin has its deepest hook in us. Now if this is the disease, what's the cure? Is there a way to rise from the ashes? Is there a way for love and sex and marriage to rise from these ashes and attain to glory again? Yes, absolutely. This is the good news. There is hope. The good news, which St. Valentine certainly knew and which Ash Wednesday proclaims, is that while, yes, everything sin touches turns to ashes, there is hope because everything Jesus touches is brought to life again. Jesus can save us from all of it. His blood can cleanse us. His blood can cleanse us from all of our sins, sexual sins included. His blood can heal us. You know, one thing that I have found through the years as a pastor is that guilt that people experience from sexual sin is a particularly stubborn form of guilt. It's very hard to overcome those guilt feelings and really experience forgiveness. But the blood of Christ really can do that. You have to believe these words of the gospel that he does not mark our iniquities against us. Jesus brings forgiveness. He brings transformation into our lives. By trusting Jesus, we're enabled to live a new way, to put sin to death and to live in accord with our design rather than against our design. This is the good news of the gospel. In Jesus, you really are righteous. In Jesus, your sin really is washed away. Jesus died for it, and so it is forgiven. But because Jesus died for it, you've also got to kill it. You see that? He died for your sin, so you can be forgiven, yes. But he died for your sin, not so you can go on in it, but so that you can put that sin to death. And indeed, this is right at the heart of what the season of Lent is about. It's right at the heart of what the Christian life is about, putting sin to death. The whole Christian life is about mortifying your sin and growing into a life of righteousness. And this righteousness, this way of righteousness, is full of blessing and joy and peace because it's exactly what God made us for. 
It's living according to our design. In Mark chapter 10, when Jesus begins to answer a question about divorce, he says, from the beginning of the creation, he goes back to the beginning and he points to the order and design that God embedded in his creation. Sin has damaged our ability to fulfill that design, but the design itself has not changed. And God, in his grace, restores us so that we can fulfill that design. Imagine taking water and pouring it on your computer keyboard. Your keyboard's going to malfunction if you pour water on it because it's not designed to work that way. God designed human sexuality to function in a certain way. And when we break his law, we violate his design. Our systems malfunction. When we break God's law, we break ourselves. See, God's law, contrary to what the world would say, God's law is not sexually oppressive. No, it is the way of life and joy and blessing because God's law tells us how to live in accord with our own nature, with the divine design. God's laws are for our good. I want to quickly here highlight a couple of areas where we need to check ourselves and deal with any sin in our own lives that would keep us from living in accord with God's design. We've seen the disease. What's the prescription? We've seen how we've turned love into ashes. How can love rise from the ashes? I think there's really two things here we've got to grasp. The meaning of sex and the meaning of the sexes. So the meaning of sex. See, our culture misuses sex because our culture doesn't know what sex is for. Our culture doesn't know God's purpose in sex. Sexual desire is good. It's God-given. Sexual desire is part of God's good design to bring man and woman together, to bond them as one, to produce children, to form families and households. Sex is a powerful drive in your life by design. But in a fallen world, that drive is also dangerous. It's like fire. You've heard me talk about this before, probably. It's, it's like fire. If kept in the fireplace, it can bring warmth and light to the whole household. Outside the fireplace, it destroys the whole house, and indeed, even the whole culture will burn to the ground. And of course, the fireplace, the place where sexual desire belongs, the fireplace is the covenant of marriage. That's where sex belongs. The meaning of sex cannot be separated from the covenant of marriage. And so all throughout scripture we find God calling us as his people to sexual holiness. Uh, one of the best passages to see this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul piles on one reason after another to pursue sexual holiness and avoid sexual sin. In verse 18 he says sexual sin is unique in that it is against one's own body. You know, many today think that what we do sexually doesn't matter precisely because all it is is a bodily act and, well, the body doesn't matter. It's just the body after all. So what does it matter? Well, this is just the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. For Paul, the body matters and the body is good. The body is part of God's good creation. And so for Paul, the body is essential to our identity. And what we do with it has massive consequences because you never do anything that's just bodily. Because body and spirit are united. Everything you do involves your body and your spirit, your body and your soul. So yes, sex is physical, but sex is also spiritual. And it has a spiritual meaning. The body has a spiritual meaning. 
And so in verse 19, Paul says that when a Christian engages in sexual sin, he's not only defiling his body, he's not only sinning against his own body, he's defiling God's temple. Because if you are a Christian, your body is holy. Your body is sacred space. Your body is God's temple. At the end of this chapter, Paul really sums it all up. He says, glorify God with your body. In context here, we could say what he really means is glorify God with your sex life. Glorify God with your sexuality. That's the meaning of sex. And of course, in the very next chapter, ignore the chapter break there, in chapter 7, uh, he goes right on to talk about the goodness of sex within the covenant of marriage. How sex is even a right and a duty uh, for spouses in the covenant of marriage. So we've got to recover the true meaning purpose and design of sex but second we've got to recognize this as well because the world does not understand sex it does not understand the sexes male and female we've got to recover this as well God made man male and female what does that mean God gives men male bodies and masculine souls and God gives women female bodies and feminine souls and God designed the male and the female to come together as one in the covenant of marriage. God designed the man for the woman and the woman for the man. God designed us to complete one another, to complement one another. He designed men and women for mutuality in the covenant of marriage. Now here's the thing, talking about male-female differences is very unpopular today. As soon as you start to talk about the differences, all kinds of accusations will come. One accusation will be, well, you're just stereotyping. Not everybody's like that. Well, I do recognize there can be problems with stereotyping, particularly stereotyping the sexes. It is certainly possible to be too rigid about sexual stereotypes. Nevertheless, stereotypes are valuable because stereotypes really what stereotypes are all about is pattern recognition it's recognizing patterns in God's world patterns that God has built into the world patterns in male and female nature and there are certain patterns that we can recognize certain patterns in male and female behavior that are seen in scripture and of course can be recognized and have been recognized by many outside the scripture so if I were to tell you that a violent crime has been committed, but I don't tell you whether it was a man or a woman, and I want you to guess, you're probably going to guess it's a man, because the stereotype is men commit more violent crimes, and if you said it's probably a man, you'd have a 90% chance of being right. Because the vast majority of violent crimes are committed by men. Uh, I can't help this, and I apologize for this ahead of time. The reason Taylor Swift's music is so popular with teenage girls is because she taps into stereotypical teenage girl experiences. You know, every song she sings, the teenage girl thinks, oh, Taylor Swift is singing about me and my experience. Taylor Swift has recognized patterns, and she sings about them, and that's why they resonate with so many young girls. Stereotypes are real. Recognizing patterns in the creation is just how we grow in wisdom. So this is what we've got to understand. Vice and virtue are gendered. It is true that there are many sins that men and women both commit with roughly equal frequency. It's also true that the Christian life looks very similar in many ways for men and women. Men and women both need to repent of their sin. They both need to trust Christ. They both need to bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
All that's the same, we could say, for men and women. But it is also true that there are some sins that men are more prone to commit and some sins that women are more prone to commit. And Scripture addresses this in many places. Consider that passage we read in Proverbs chapter 7. In Proverbs chapter 7, the wise father is warning his son about lust and about being seduced, about falling for the wrong kind of woman. He's trying to give his son wisdom about his own sexual desires and about the kind of women that he will encounter in the world. He's vulnerable to this kind of temptation as a man. He's vulnerable to the temptation to lust. But the woman described in Proverbs chapter 7, she's sinning too, but note that she is sinning in a complimentary way. He lusts, she wants to be the object of lust. Verse 10 of that chapter says that she dresses like a prostitute. She dresses immodestly. And of course, Scripture doesn't spell out what that means for us. We're supposed to know what that means. We're supposed to be able to recognize it. She's dressing to seduce. Now think about this. He lusts. By the way she dresses, she turns herself into an object of lust. They're sinning in complementary ways. Now let me say one more thing about this. If a woman dresses immodestly, that does not excuse a man's lust for her. She is responsible for what she wears. She's not responsible for his thoughts. And he's responsible for his thoughts and his desires, but not for her clothing. So each has got to, you know, you stay in your own lane. You're responsible for your own sin, not somebody else's in this case. But this is the thing. Lust is wrong, and seeking to inflame lust is also wrong. And many times, this is the way it plays out for men and women. They sin in complementary ways. The man and the woman have different areas of vulnerability, different areas of temptation. You see that in Proverbs chapter 7. Herman Bavink says that men tend to go back and forth between despising women and worshiping women. In their relationships with, with, with women, men either tend to be tyrannical abusers or they tend to be pathetic simps. They tend to either view women as devils or as angels. Men kind of oscillate between those extremes. Those extremes are sinful for the man. But likewise, the woman oscillates between her own unhealthy extremes, either obsessing over having a man's affections to the point where she'll do almost anything to have his affection and his attention, or insisting that she's a strong, independent woman who doesn't need a man at all. These extremes are unhealthy. They're wrong. The reality is men and women are both sinners, but toxic masculinity is very different from toxic femininity. Men and women tend to sin in ways that are the mirror images of one another. Or to put it another way, Satan-likeness in men does not look like Satan-likeness in women. But you know what else is true? Christ-likeness in men looks quite different than Christ-likeness in women. See, on the flip side, there is a positive complementarity when masculine and feminine energies are channeled towards obedience, they strengthen and glorify one another. Men and women do produce the same fruit of the Spirit. Christian men and Christian women produce the same fruit of the Spirit, but the masculine version of that fruit looks quite different from the feminine version of that fruit. Fathers love their children in one way, mothers in another way. And when a child receives both fatherly paternal love and motherly maternal love, that child gets everything he needs. That's how God designed it. In Ephesians chapter 5, 
Uh, Paul gives different commands to men and women because we have different needs, we have different desires in terms of what we want from the opposite sex, what we want from our spouse. And we also have different, different strengths, different weaknesses. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul describes the different roles of husband and wife in marriage. And it's kind of like a dance. Not, not the kind of modern free-form dancing where everybody just does whatever they want on the dance floor, but a traditional structured dance where the man leads and the woman follows. And the two become one unit on the dance floor, moving together in sync. So there's synergy between them. That's how it's to work. Or think of it this way. Husband and wife can be thought of this way. I'm not, I don't want to take this analogy too far, but I think it's still helpful. Suppose a family has two cars. They've got a pickup truck and they've got a minivan. And those two vehicles have many things in common. They both have four wheels. They both got an engine and a transmission. They both got an air conditioner and a stereo. They both can get you from point A to point B. But those two vehicles really are different. They've got a different design. They serve different purposes. The minivan is built to haul people. The pickup truck is meant to haul lumber or whatever else you pick up at Home Depot. They're both useful, but in different ways because they have a different design. So it is with men and women, with husbands and wives. Now think about what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Paul says the husband is the head. So he represents the whole. He represents the household. He has both authority over and responsibility for his family. Paul says that he is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And Paul goes on to explain what that means. His one flesh covenant union with her is to image Christ's covenantal relationship with the church. He's to be an image of Christ to his wife. Paul says that he is to nourish and cherish her. To nourish her means to provide. To cherish her means to protect. So he is responsible for her protection and provision. He is to fight and work for his family. That is his calling. The wife is given a different set of instructions in Ephesians 5. The wife is commanded to obey her husband, to respect him, to submit to him. In Genesis chapter 2, she's called his helper. She's called his helper, created to help him fulfill the mission God has given to him. Whereas the man's mind and body are designed primarily for working and taking dominion in the world, the woman is designed primarily for helping and nurturing, of course, especially the nurturing of children. Adam named his wife in Genesis 3. He named her Eve, meaning mother of the living. Because women are designed to be life givers and nurturers. Women are homemakers by design and by instinct. Women are made for fruitfulness and for glory. Women are made for motherhood. Spiritual motherhood, yes, but also biological motherhood. The woman is called the glory of the man. And she is the glory of the home. It is the woman's presence that turns a house into a home. Think about it. A woman's body is a home for her child during pregnancy. For that unborn child, mom and home are one and the same. Mom and home are identical. But after pregnancy, this continues to be true in a sense as she becomes a homemaker for her child. She continues to make a home for her child. And it's not just that she does domestic chores. It's so much more than that. The glory of her role is found in creating a loving environment for her family. So the home really becomes an extension of her womb, of, of who she is, an extension of her very self. She is the home. She's irreplaceable there as nowhere else. Psalm 128 calls her the heart of the home. Again, what makes a house, a home, is a mother's touch, a mother's love, a mother's presence. The home is her domain. She shapes its culture and its ethos and its life. And for most people, even as 
grown-up adults, home is where mom is. That's just how we think of it. That's just how it is. Now, how is the wife to treat her husband? Well, we can wrap this up here. The wife is to respect her husband. That's what Paul says. Now, this is something, a lot of this I learned from C.S. Lewis, okay, to be open with you. And this point especially I learned from C.S. Lewis. I'm not blaming him. I'm just giving him credit. Remember what I said earlier. Sexual differences drive sexual attraction. Sexual polarity is the key to romance. The roles that God assigns to husbands and wives are necessary to create sexual desire and sexual chemistry and sexual bonding. In other words, headship and respect in a marriage between a husband and wife, headship and respect are not just practical necessities for day-to-day life. They are romantic necessities as well. Or as Lewis puts it, they are erotic necessities. The world's version of marriage based on androgyny kills romance. It kills it. God's version of marriage based on the man's headship and the woman's respect stokes the fires of romance in the fireplace of the covenant. Now, we have little ones present, so I won't say anything more about it than that. But you married people can go home and figure out what C.S. Lewis meant when he said that. And so I'll simply conclude by saying, Happy Ash Valentine's Wednesday. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.